Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my buddy, Tom Jokic. How's it going today, Tom? Hey, Christopher. Christopher, do you remember, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but do you remember <laughs> basically the first big artist that you got to interview? So when I was at Much, it was probably Peter Gabriel. And it was when he was on the Human Rights Now tour. Right. And there's that. But I also have an older memory that goes back to the Peterborough, Ontario Memorial Center. We'd started up a, a campus radio station at Trent University. And I was one of the founding fathers. And uh, they sent me, and I was terrified, to interview Gord Lightfoot backstage at the, at the Memorial Center. And they gave me a big Nagra machine, which was an old-fashioned reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder. And I mean, I was prepared because I was a huge Lightfoot fan, but he had an intimidating reputation. As it turned out, he couldn't have been nicer and more, uh, you know, open and easy to talk to. The only problem that happened was at, at some point during the interview, and it was long, uh, the tape ran out, <laughs> which I didn't notice. Oh, and I just and I just kept asking and asking and asking more and more and more questions <laughs> because I didn't know how to end it. Alas, right. uh, luckily, he, I, I, first I know he didn't notice that the tape. Had run That's out. very funny. That's very yeah. funny. So the reason why I'm asking is because I'd been in radio for a good twelve, thirteen, maybe fifteen years. Um, by the time 1994 rolled around, and I had never really done an interview, even though I'd been in the business for a while producing radio shows and writing some stuff and all that. But one day they said, Tom, do you want to interview Steve Perry? And I went, uh, sure. And it was really my first kick at the cat, you know? And mm. so it was, it, it was a very exciting thing. You know, I drove uh, to downtown Toronto to, uh, to a venue. If you're from Toronto, you know all about it. But if you're not, Massey Hall is a classic venue, one of the best venues in, in all of Canada um, in terms of sound quality and in terms of history and everything. It's just a great experience for the audience and for the most part, uh, the artist, except for the change rooms. <laughs> but I got to meet him backstage just before he went on. So that's what we're going to hear today. And I just discovered this a matter of days ago in a drawer in a cassette in my office, you know, at home. Yeah, because you haven't talked about this. I figured I would have heard about this before. Yeah. No, I don't think I had because I kind of forgot about it. And then I found it. And unfortunately, the whole interview is not there, but about five minutes of it exists because I actually taped it off the radio, if you can believe that, um, and, and the tape ran out halfway through the interview. <laughs> hey, I know that. <laughs> I can't find it. I can't find it anywhere. I tape it off the radio because I'm going, okay, I wonder how it ended up sounding, and, uh, right. and I have most of it, well, five minutes of it, but it's a, it's a pretty decent five minutes. Anyway, we'll talk more about that because that's what we're featuring. That's our main headline feature this week on Famous Lost Words. What else have we got this week, Tom? Well, Christopher, we've got a really great interview with Jennifer Lopez from 2001, another beauty from the Marilyn Dennis collection. <laughs> Marilyn is a dear friend of mine, and I just discovered her stash of wonderful interviews, yet another nugget in that gold mine. Plus, we have an interview with myself and Meatloaf, and it's a little strange because my phone rings right in the middle of the interview, but Meatloaf has a lot of fun with that moment. We've also got some cool song facts, but first, Steve Perry. Don't stop believing. 
That's Steve Perry and Journey from 1981 and Don't Stop Believing. But now we're not talking about Journey. We're talking about Steve Perry solo. Tom, I know this is a special interview for you. So I'm going to want to hear a little more setting of the scene if possible. But I got to tell you, in slightly under five minutes, you guys got to a lot of different topics, including bands versus session players, taking your time, lots of time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) dealing with loss, and old bandmates. Um, Now, it took place around the time of Steve Perry's second solo LP. The first one, Street Talk, came out while he was still in the band journey. Uh, This one, uh, For the Love of Strange Medicine, was released 10 years later in 1994. Tom, tell me all about it. So as I said, they corner me at the radio station and say, we need someone to interview uh, Steve Perry. And... I probably had done a, a, a number of minor interviews at the station, you know, when no one else was around or when no one else wanted to interview them. Maybe it was an artist just starting out or an artist perhaps that we didn't even really play, but the record company wanted an interview. So I would I would do it and have it for the archives. But they sent me down to Massey Hall in uh, downtown Toronto to interview Steve Perry, and I was so nervous. And I sat down with him and did this interview – and like you said, there's a lot in it in the short period of time, and I think it's been like heavily edited because I don't sound too bad in it. <laughs> and so I, I'm a little unsure as to how the raw copy sounded, but I do know that it was a, it was a pretty gratifying experience for me. And I got to tell you, at the end, I said to him, wow, Steve, that was my very first interview. And he looked at me and he said, man, you rocked it. Oh, that's Isn't that lovely. just great? It was such a good feeling because I was a fan of his and I was probably quite intimidated by the fact that I was talking to someone with such a history, even at that point. Right. And so it was a real thrill when it was all said and done and how nervous I was and how new I was to the game that I had done an interview with a major artist and he said, you rocked it, Tom. Ah, I met him once. You want to hear the story? It's brief. Go ahead. Okay, so we were in the San Fernando Valley recording Alana's second album and Steve Perry walks in and you know he's very quiet very subdued introduces himself and then he goes and sits on a sort of a bench up at the back of the studio almost like a sort of a rafters type of uh, seating and uh, so we think well I, I'm not sure why he's here but we're, we'll just carry on and do our work so we worked on for like a couple of hours and he just sat there through the whole thing, didn't say one word, and then at one point he just got up and left. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and we never saw him again. <laughs> the disappearing journey singer. That's weird. So I, I don't, to this day, really know <laughs> the, the why and the wherefore, but it's, it's an odd story, but I know yeah. you enjoy them. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you don't know what he thought. You don't know if he thought, oh, that's great, or if he took anything from it. Think, oh, that's an interesting way to interesting way no, to. No, I know. It, 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 there was nothing. It wasn't like, uh, hey, nicely done, lads, or you know, that's a yeah. load of crap. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what nothing. Just. That's great. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. So this is a 1994 interview with myself and Steve Perry. I understand that during the hiatus that you had trouble explaining to people what you were up to when they ran into you, when they when old fans would come up to you and ask you, what, what are you up to, Steve, and what would you say to them? You're right, I'd walk down the street and people come up to me and they'd say, well, I'd say, excuse me? They'd say, well, aren't you Steve Perry? I'd say, well, well yes, I am. And they'd say, 
what have you been? I mean, aren't you singing anymore? I mean, what have you been? Do, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, you know, well, um, I don't know. I guess I'm just sort of waiting for it to come back. And that's what I was doing. I was waiting for the honest passion uh, to come back. I wasn't just going to make a record because it was time. You know, people do that in this world. They just crank them out, like like you know, Chevys or something, because it's a it's the it's the new year. But that's I don't want to do that. So there was nothing really to sing or write about at that time. So I didn't. And so I waited till there was something that came along in my heart that I wanted to sing or say. And that's what this uh, record for The Love of Strange Medicine is about. For your first solo album, Street Talk, you hired a lot of session musicians. This one was done with a, a cohesive band and a cohesive unit. Is it more important to you to have a band kind of feel to both the album and, uh, and when you're out there than, than the session people that you had, uh, for example? Not, not taking away from the session people, of course. Well, the session thing is, is, is a different kind of reality. You know, whenever you go see certain groups that have session players, you can tell. It doesn't fuse together. It's about spirit, isn't it? It is about spirit. It's 100% spirit. I've found players that just play great, that aren't the, the flavor of the month of the year in that town studio hot guy, you know, that have spirit, but the hottest guy who really is the most proficient and, and brilliant in his craft has no spirit. Still to come, Steve Perry talks about the cause of his very painful exit from Journey. Plus, J-Lo talks about her big break her personal life, and yes, that dress. Hey, Famous Lost Word fans. I just want to tell you about a podcast that I've been listening to lately. It's called No Sleep Till Sudbury by a friend of mine named Brent Jensen. Now, a few months ago, I'd never heard of Brent or his podcast until a buddy of mine told me about it. And now, not only do I listen every week, Brent and I now talk all the time. No Sleep Till Sudbury is perfect for the rock geek, Brent interviews some great people. His recent Kim Mitchell chat is one of the best interviews I've heard in a long time. But not just the big, big names. He'll talk to the drummer from the Black Crows or the founding guitarist of Twisted Sister. And those guys have got some amazing stories and are pretty eager to tell them. Some of my favorite episodes are when Brent talks about a specific topic or year, like 1980 when we lost Bon Scott, John Bonham, John Lennon. Really great insights from a guy who's a big fan. Check out No Sleep Till Sudbury wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We've still got Jennifer Lopez and Meatloaf ahead, but now back to my interview with Steve Perry from 1994. And this is where things get personal and painful. You told me that uh, you lost your mother uh, during the last Journey Tour. And is that the last journey, making the last journey record before the tour? Yeah. And what did you discover about your personal life when you when you took your hiatus? Like, what what do you know now that you didn't know then? One of the, that's a good question. One of the things I noticed that I hadn't dealt with it because I, I was recording vocals at the time, and she had a long term illness. I was actually flying home on weekends and producing and recording the journey record on, on weekdays. So when I uh, when that finally happened, uh, I took uh, about five, six days for the business of life to clean things up in the family, you know, and take care of things that you have to do. I was an only son. She was my mom, and I have no, no real... My dad and her were not close at that point, of course. So I was the guy to take care of the stuff. Anyway, I uh, got back to Journey and just jumped into finishing the record, vocalizing the record, rehearsing for the tour, and went right out. 
So when the tour ended in February, I was done more ways than one. A lot of things had, had come to a to a golden brown. They were well done, you know, and I, I needed to go back. And so when I went back to my hometown, that's some of the things that I think that, uh, that came together was, uh, you know, to finally grieve for that because I, I put it on hold because the music business can do that, you know. The road can be a place where you keep moving so fast that life never touches you, so you think. And then eventually it grabs you on the butt, takes a big chunk out. So in many ways, these songs were, in fact, like therapy for you and, uh, and what you had been through and what you had learned. In a lot of ways, yeah, absolutely. Some of your old Journey bandmates have formed a new group called Abraxas. And, uh, and uh, well, how much have you heard? And do you, know, do you keep in touch with the guys at all? Not really. I, they're not pleased with me because I'm not doing what they wanted me to do, you know, when they wanted me to do it. So uh, that's the way they've sort of set up the guidelines of our friendship. And unfortunately, that's not going to work, I guess, at this point. Can you tell me what they wanted you to do? Mm, they wanted me to let them know when I was coming back to Journey. And uh, if I couldn't tell them when I was coming back, that uh, they were going to go ahead and go on without me. And that was the way, I guess, I don't, it doesn't sound like an invitation. It sounds like an ultimatum to me. From 1994, that's me in conversation with Steve Perry. That's a very powerful ending there. But oddly enough, despite those bad feelings, Steve did rejoin Journey to record the album Trial by Fire about a year and a half later, but then ended up leaving or being dismissed, depending on who you talk to, after he hurt his hip and required hip replacement surgery. He waited for quite a while to have the surgery, which kind of ticked off his bandmates because they're saying, like, when are you going to have this? And when it was all said and done, he waited almost two years. And about a year and a half into that wait, the band did not want to wait any longer. So they hired a new singer and went out on tour without Steve. And he has never sung with them since. But he did, as you know, Christopher have a lot of great things to say about his former bandmates when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. That was just one of the most gracious uh, acceptance speeches that I can recall from those events. Absolutely, it was a great one. There you go. Steve Perry on Famous Lost Words. That's Love Don't Cost a Thing from the year 2000. Jennifer Lopez on Famous Lost Words. Tom, she's a singer, an actress, a dancer, a fashion designer, a TV star, and an all-round mogul. Jennifer Lopez, known affectionately as J-Lo, has been a fixture on TV, radio, movie screens, and in the tabloids since her early 20s. Now, this is someone who has truly lived their life in public, whether she designed it that way or not. In an interview, and this one comes from the early 2000s, around the time of her second album, J-Lo, she can be candid but cautious at the same time. Now, Marilyn Dennis puts Lopez at ease, but she still only tells listeners what she was prepared to reveal. We start with one of the topics of the day at the time, the tabloids, and how she dodges certain issues. Sometimes you just don't, you wish that you could be private you yeah. know, about your private life. And right. that's more, I think, what people read into, you know. Why do you think they're so investigative? Why do you think they want to know? Do they want to find know. something wrong? I don't know. No? I think people are just curious. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So do you feel that uh, if, 
I guess in some interviews, people say, well, I don't want to say anything, so I'm not going to say anything at all. If I say something, then it gets misrepresented, like we had mentioned before. So is now your policy to kind of stay away from that a little bit? I just kind of just don't like to talk about it at all because、yeah. there's just certain things that you want to keep private and sacred. You yeah, know? yeah. Not just for yourself, but for the people that you care about. We have a question here.、Uh, I don't know where it's from, but it says, You seem like a very passionate person, one who won't hold back their feelings for fear of getting hurt. Is that true? Yes, I think so. You know, I mean, as, we, as you get older and you've gone through more and more experiences,、mm-hmm. you know, the tendency is to become more guarded, more afraid, more this, more that. Yeah. But、um, I really try to make a conscious effort not to let that happen, you know, and just love. You know, like I've never been hurt before. So let's, let's talk about Love Don't Cost a Thing.、Uh, a little background on that one. I really just loved that song because, again, of what it said, the message it was conveying. And, and, the, and it's the just、messages. something, the, the message is really like you can have all these material things and it's nice and, you know, it's great when your partner gives you nice things. But at the end of the day, if he's not giving you his time and his, his understanding and his love and his, you know, The important things, it, what is it all worth at the end of the day? Nothing. You can't snuggle up to the coat or the, the rings or, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, or exactly. Or the car, whatever. It could be as big as that, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Oh, sure. She is guarded, but she really does reveal quite a bit there. That's great. The dress. What? <laughs> that dress. <laughs> it did, after、yeah. all, draw a reasonable amount of attention, both when Jennifer Lopez was wearing it. And afterwards, as well, when she had to continue talking about it. You know, that famous dress that you wore on Saturday Night Live and, of course, to the American Music Awards.、Um, did you have to be careful in that dress? <laughs> that could have been an embarrassing moment. That was no, quite... it was fine. Yeah? There was no chance of anything happening. No chance.、Mm-mm. What did your parents think of that dress? I think at first, because this is what I say when people, you know, people around you love being affected by stuff, you know,、yeah. everybody comes to them the next day, oh my God, da, 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 and they feel like, oh God, you know, they feel bad because all they ever want anybody to say about you is wonderful things because、mm. they're your parents. Right. But then afterwards, you know, once they started seeing that it was on covers of papers and, you know, not such a negative thing, but more of a, a wow thing, like, you know,、mm-hmm. um, they were happier. You know,、mm-hmm. so I it was a good thing. They're protective. Sure, sure.、Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, I don't think anybody remembered who won what award that night because that <laughs> dress was the talk, talk of the town for a long time. Oh, it sure was. And she even wore that dress again 18 years later last year when she hosted Saturday Night Live. Look, Tom Lopez is at her most revealing in an answer to a question about her starring role in the Selena biopic, a role for which she received a Golden Globe nomination. It was a really. Great experience for me because just to be involved in something like that, to learn about this girl. I didn't really know her before she passed away. And、um, I mean, it was just such an emotional experience that I kind of closed myself off to while I was playing her because Selena didn't know she was going to be killed. So I had to play her as alive and as vibrant and beautiful a person as she was. So, I didn't realize that it kind of was a defense mechanism. I had people around me crying all the time from people, her family, her friends, come down to the set, see me dressed in her clothes, see me perform her songs, and just break down. Never once did I cry. As I go away and I did another movie immediately after that U turn, while I was filming that movie, I saw a screening, the first screening of Selena. And I remember I sat there and I watched the whole movie, and not until then did. 
all of that pain that I had harbored and from learning about her and then realizing the tragedy that this family had suffered, I let it out. At that point, I must have cried for 45 minutes straight, uncontrollable sobbing. And uh, in a way, it did change my life because it just made me realize like you never know what's going to happen mm -hmm. and you have to seize the day and you have to live and go after the, your dreams now and tell the people that you love now that you love them and not wait and just so many things it was just a really really special experience a very big movie for her and one that led to greater things you know i guess i i think that her best early movie role was out of sight with george clooney yeah jennifer lopez was just great in that role and of course she tore it up with her recent role in hustlers which I thought was a very good movie and featured a fantastic performance by Jennifer. And I do believe that she should have gotten more critical recognition. Yes, part of it was her as a dancer and part of it was Jennifer Lopez just looking like very a very beautiful Jennifer Lopez, which she is. But I thought she was really fierce in that performance. And I, I don't know, I thought dramatically she carried it off. I think that she was kind of... Um, kind of brushed aside um, by the awards and all that just because she is so beautiful and she is Jennifer Lopez. She is indeed Jennifer Lopez. And uh, I, I have to say, I haven't seen Hustlers, so I can't make any comment on that, but I did see Out of Sight. And uh, I, thought she, I thought she was wonderful. Now, it was you know, a lightweight picture to be sure, but uh, she and George yeah. together, I mean, they, they kind of make the screen glow pretty nicely, don't you think? Yes, for sure. They had great chemistry. Mm -hmm. There you go. Jennifer Lopez on Famous Lost Words. You're listening to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Christopher, you and I both have kind of strong feelings about meatloaf. <laughs> well, and I'm uh, a vegetarian, so of course I do. <laughs> and uh, not all of them are really positive. He was always a pretty entertaining... He could be a pretty entertaining interview subject little bit cranky at times, but I got a chance to talk to him in 2006, and I actually sent this to you recently. It's, yeah. it's actually a pretty good interview. Was he was he cranky in your mind? I, uh, he, he was, but he was also very friendly. And at one point in this interview, which I've left in, and, you know, as a professional, this would never have gone to air at the time. <laughs> I love this. But he, my phone, I forgot to turn my phone off. It was fairly Oops. early in my in the cell, cell phone, phone era. Yeah. My cell phone era, 2006. <laughs> and I forgot to turn it off. You can hear it ring, and he answers it. <laughs> and it's my then wife, now my ex-wife, but, but it's her on the phone. And Meatloaf talks to her. And I just think it's kind of it's Oh, you've got to leave that in. I definitely okay. will. And it's a pretty good chat. And... It shows a few sides to Meatloaf, particularly kind of his pride in kind of the theatrical nature of his music. And also, you know, he's he's a larger-than-life character, even in the sense of how he speaks about himself and his music. Of course, he's lately become very outspoken, said some things that, you know, I personally don't agree with. Other people will. Um, but sometimes a little bit distasteful. But nevertheless, he is a real character in the history of rock and roll. So here we go. Let's have a listen and tell me what you think. 2006, my interview with Meatloaf. What do you think it is about the music that touches so many people? You know, that first album, of course, was was huge and still one of the biggest selling albums of the year, year after year, selling over almost a quarter of a million copies every every year. And that's, 
you know, almost 30 years after the fact. What yeah, is it about you, I, I, I can tell you, but here's an odd fact. It just jumped back into the charts in Australia at number 20-something. Just like, I, why? Who knows why? But it's an emotional connection, and that's what you strive for no matter what you're doing, whether you're acting in a film, whatever it is. And the, the films that they consider classics and the albums they consider classics, they have had an emotional connection with their listeners or their viewers and that's what you strive to get in the studio but it's an emotional connection that you try to reach with your audience and it's as plain and simple as that and Battle of Hell is one of the very few and we are so fortunate that it it, it has had that kind of emotional connection to multi-generations mm-hmm. I mean it's just no doubt about it you can't argue with it well the success of Bad Out of Hell was probably quite overwhelming for you. And I understand that there was a oh, lot of problems God, I that lost followed. My mind. I lost my mind. I had a nervous breakdown. I had to go to a psychologist for six months, five days a week, two hours a day. Did you, do you think you needed to be better equipped emotionally or just with the, for success? Like, would it, would, well, would it yeah, because I didn't, I, didn't know, I, didn't, I didn't know the true definition. I didn't know what the public's definition of success was. I didn't understand... I know what my definition of success is, and I still have it, but I didn't understand what the public's definition or the press's definition of success was. I didn't, I didn't, they didn't distinguish that in the dictionary. They didn't distinguish three different, success, three different versions. There's your version, there is the, there is the public perception version, and there is the, they only give you one definition of success. What's your version? What's your definition of success? My definition of success is that we sell records and I get to go play shows for the people. And I get to go back to my room and I get to go down to the movies and I get to go out to eat and I can go shopping and I can get on planes by myself. And it's like that's definition of success. Um, it's, you know, and I, I can, I just, you know, I pay my electric bill and, and if I can need a plumber, I call one and he doesn't come in and charge me three times because I'm meatloaf, three times extra. The, the uh, public perception is, is like little piranha attacking and the press perception is like great whites attacking. So the public is piranha, the, the press is great whites, uh, packs of them, <laughs> the packs of great whites. Who see the piranha will take a little while to strip you down to your bones. The great whites, nah, they don't take any time at all, man. It's just like two bites and you're gone. So how did you manage to get out of the water then? Oh, that's easy. I just figured out. Well, see, now I got to go into another metaphor. I decided that the entertainment business was swimming in a river of snakes. Okay, so I said, well, okay, this is the business I've chosen. How do I deal with this? I know. I'll get a rowboat. And so, and if a snake tries to hop into my boat, I just bash him over the head with the oar and throw him back in. And it's pretty simple. And, and, and see, a lot of times, you know, snakes are hidden in trees and things and you can't necessarily coming up, coming up on you, but, but you learn to smell them and know where they are. Didn't it, didn't it help when you kind of redefined who you were by appearing in different things? I always think that even people in this, who, you know, if you're working in the mailroom, if, you, if you're able to redefine who you are to the, to the rest of the staff or to your bosses here, then that does so much, A, for your personality, for your... Uh, for your are you talking uh, about the acting side of it? Yes, I'm talking about well, acting I, and branching, started, branching out. But I started out as an actor. Well, that's true. And we saw you in Rocky so, Horror so, and other things. So my, diver- my diversity was going over to music, not to the acting. 
Right. So, but I know, I know what you're saying. But I was, you know, I was already diverse in that field, so mm-hmm. that wasn't a really a big, uh, you know, for other people, it's like this big giant step. Oh, I'm going over to do film. For me, it was the other thing was the big high, music was right. But the perception was that I think that you diversified, even though you had been a, an yeah, actor before. I did, well, I just, and did that? Do you think that that helped in kind of? No, because nobody ever realizes it's me in film, which is even the best thing. <laughs> because I can, I lose meatloaf. I lose the meatloaf persona. People go, man, I sit and watch that movie, and halfway through, I realize that's meatloaf. And I go, thank you. Because you're not, you're not, you know, people see Fight Club, and then, you know, people who see it go, you got a, you had a big part. And I go, well, yeah, that's okay. But I didn't even know it was you. Yeah. Ah, thank you, man. Thank you. Any new projects regarding uh, movies on no, the horizon? I, well, other than I've turned down six in the last seven weeks, and uh, because I'm doing this, and this is a, uh, this is a, this is a basically a two year run here from the start of promotion till the end of we finish touring it. It's, so it's a two year run. I do have a, a couple of things that we're putting the can. One I can't remember what it is. The other one is Tedacious D movie where I play Jack Black's father, which opened in November, which opens in November. And the other thing is. Um, if if people Sorry, give me a, just, that's okay I'll shut, I'll you, 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 here let me have it that's my wife oh hi we're in the middle of an interview <laughs> I said we're in the middle of an interview who's this are you confused Cheryl you're talking to meatloaf yeah <laughs> okay she told me to get out yeah don't get out yet ask her if I need to pick something up Do, does he need to pick something up. She left a message on your work number. Okay. Okay, he'll get it. No milk, no eggs, no egg, chicken, fish, nothing. Just just, <laughs> just pick up some 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 ground beef because she's going to make meatloaf tonight. All right. Okay. Great, I hope cool. she doesn't make meatloaf tonight. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. All right. So we were going someplace though. Before that, we got interrupted. The phone call. We were talking about acting, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, oh, I know. Showtime. The thing on Showtime. If you get Showtime up here, I did a series of uh, uh, called Masters of Horror on Showtime with with the unbelievable director Dario Argento, and I made horror movie history. I was told it's really the most disgusting, gross thing you've ever seen in your life. Excellent. So watch that. Like. Okay. <laughs> and Bad Out of Hell three is out on Halloween Day, October thirty first. Bad Out of Hell three, the monster is loose. Nice to meet you, Meatloaf. Nice to meet you. You're a brave man, Tom. <laughs> that was really funny with your ex. <laughs> I love that. That was a. Has weird... she heard this? Uh, uh, no. I mean, I will. I will send it to her. <laughs> I, uh, she'd certainly be interested. And I know that it would have been one of those things where, where I yell out, "Honey, you're talking to Meatloaf!" Like, and she would go, "What? Who?" But you know, she clearly knew what I did at the station, and right. that sometimes I did interviews. But I'm sure she would have just been right on her heels at that moment, going, "Uh, okay." <laughs> Hi, Mr. Loaf. Loaf? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh. Anyway, there you go. Meatloaf on Famous Lost Words. Remember that song? The Verve from 1997 and Bittersweet Symphony. Well, coming up next, we'll tell you about their bittersweet victory when it comes to songwriting royalties. You're listening to Famous Lost Words with myself, Christopher Ward, and my co-host, Tom Jokic, who is also the brains behind this next segment. It's called Cool Song Facts. Yes, but I'm not alone because you're going to be contributing to this, too. And this is great. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Okay, so let's get started with the four tops. 
The Four Tops were playing a Detroit nightclub when they got a call from Brian Holland from Holland Dozier Holland, famous songwriting team, saying that he had a song ready for them. So after their show ended, they arrived at the studio 2 o'clock in the morning to record this little little song called Baby, I Need Your Lovin', <laughs> which would become their first single for Motown. What a great song and what an incredible vocal performance by Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. I love that song. Yeah, I'm right with you on that one. Well, here's a somewhat obscure little note. Bernie Toppin, lyricist at large, wrote Tiny Dancer about his wife Maxine, his first wife, who really was a seamstress for Elton John's band, and she obviously married a music man. That's great. That's great. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the song Bittersweet Symphony, a big hit for the Verve in the 90s, and that was taken from a six-note sample from a version of the Stone song The Last Time by their sometime manager, Andrew Luke Oldham. Okay? So the Verve negotiated a 50-50 split with Jagger and Richards, but then former Rolling Stones manager Alan Klein demanded 100% and said, take it or leave it. So listen to this. For 20 years, Alan Klein received all of the money. Only last year, in 2019, Richard Ashcroft struck a deal with Jagger, Richards, and Alan Klein's son relinquishing all the publishing of the song to Richard Ashcroft, which is really great because their biggest hit, he virtually made nothing out of it until last year. And I don't know if some of those publishing rights were retroactive, but I know he was so happy about that decision because it saved him from a bit of financial hardship when he needed it most. Isn't that interesting? I love that story. Just It's because it's just. It's, it's, it's what should That's have right. happened, and, and that very often is not the case. Yes, especially with someone like Alan Klein, who was not a good guy when it came to this sort of thing. He was, he was like the Colonel Tom Parker of the Rolling Stones, and of course, he had his hand in the Beatles as well. And Just not a good person to be involved in the, in the creative music business, for sure. Okay, let's keep going now with uh, Nowhere to Run. Great Motown song, Martha and the Vandellas. It was supposed to be recorded by Mary Wells. When Mary didn't show up to the studio, they asked Martha, a secretary, to sing it. (laughs) It made her a star. And that heavy percussion sound in the background was made by Snow Chains. Adam, play the beginning of that song, Nowhere to Run, Martha and the Vandellas from the early 60s, okay? That 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 really uh, that kind of draggy sound, that heavy sound. Those are snow wow. chains. I love that Who sound. Who knew? Yeah. There you go. Wow. Let's take the ethereal route now and talk about one of the great idealistic songs of all time. All you need is love by the lads. Do you know who is in the background of that? There are many background singers. Um, I think the only one I can remember from that video is Mick Jagger. Right. Mick is there with his then-partner, Marianne Faithful. Right. Um, Paul McCartney's then-partner, Jane Asher, is in attendance, along with George Harrison's then-partner, Patty Boyd, along with uh, Keith Moon from a certain band called The Who, Graham Nash, I'm sure you're familiar right. with, Eric Clapton, Mick and Keith, and a guy named Mike McGear. Oh, <laughs> I know that name. Mike McGear is Paul McCartney's brother. 
Yeah. That's right. Okay, cool. That was his uh, nom de plume, yes. That's cool. Do you, are you a fan of Elvis Costello by any chance? A man we've discussed often on this show. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. And watching The Detectives from his first album, My Aim is True. Love that song. Yeah, but very different from the rest of the record. For sure. Is that the song where he says... They're dragging the they're, – they're, she's filing her – do the line. She's filing her nails while they're dragging the lake. <laughs> that is a such line. a great line. Oh, my God. I love it. Okay. What about that song? Well, he wrote it after listening repeatedly to the first album by The Clash. You know, you can see how that spirit of that album would seep into his consciousness when he's writing it. And listen, he, Elvis Costello needs no help and no inspiration as far as I'm concerned. He's such a good songwriter. But that's very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so let's talk about a dance that everybody's doing. We're talking about the locomotion. Okay, so that song comes out early 60s. Everybody's doing it, a brand new dance now. The funny thing is, the locomotion as a dance didn't actually exist when Little Eva recorded the song, written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin. So when it became a hit, they had to invent a dance to go with it. <laughs> How old was she when they did that, do you know? Little Eva, I believe, was 13 when, she, when that came out because she was their sitter. Was she not? It's Little some story Eva. like that. Okay, so hmm. uh, Little Eva was 19 when that song came out. I actually thought she was a little bit younger, but there you go. Yeah, I thought Locomotion. so too. Hmm. You know the song Peace of My Heart? Janice, Janice Joplin. Yes, I do. <laughs> and that's one of those songs that the first time you hear it, you do not forget that sound. And you may remember the song, but even if you don't recall the song, you're going to remember that voice. I mean, it just absolutely tore through your radio speakers. And yeah. to this day, it still does. Yeah. A remarkable recording that is. You know what, though? She wasn't the first to record it. The first was an artist named Irma Franklin. What? Guess whose sister she was? Uh, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, it was Aretha. Oh, Queen that's amazing. Okay, so let's move on now. On Beast mm -hmm. of Burden, Mick Jagger originally tried the song in falsetto. Because remember, this was... These were his falsetto days with Miss You, Emotional Rescue. He originally tried Beast of Burden in that falsetto voice, but his straight-ahead version, thankfully, was released instead, and that went to the top ten. I love that song. Me too. I don't know anything about how that song was written, but I have my theory. I think, like a lot of Stone songs, it began with a riff, and I'm thinking that they just played those three chords over and over again, and Mick just jammed out the different parts. Now, he may have gone back and finessed the lyrics, or, or maybe not. But, I mean, there's not a lot going on musically, but the way that he subtly changes the musical phrasing from section to section is so cool. Anyway... My theory could be dead wrong, but that's what it is. It could very well be right as well. And to, that song reminds me of the groove of Honky Tonk Women. Just how unhurried it is, how sloppy it is, and just how amazing it is. So perhaps you're right. Mm, sloppy is good. Okay. And what's the very last cool song fact for this week, Christopher? Well, there's a wonderful song that was actually a very inspiring song for me when I wrote Black Velvet. I loved those sort of southern kind of songs like Son of a Preacher Man and Midnight Train to Georgia, that kind of song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that was originally uh, not 
it wasn't the the Gladys Knight version that was the first one. It was done originally by Sissy Houston. Oh, Whitney's mom. Whitney's mom. And the thing is, it was not called Midnight Train to Georgia. Oh, okay. It was called Midnight Plane to Houston, as in wow. Sissy. <laughs> Sissy Houston does Midnight Plane to Houston, and then uh, and then Gladys Knight picks it up, and it becomes Midnight Train to Georgia. Leaving. I got to go. I got to go. Sorry. You're one of the pips now, are you? I'm an honorary <laughs> pip, actually. They just don't know it. Anyway, there you go. Cool song facts on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Remember, there are dozens of previous episodes of Famous Lost Words. Check them out on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.